0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Prague Watch: Music that tells a story with your friend and host, Big Tony Rousek, aka Prague Squatch.
3: Welcome back to Prague Watch, my friends. Big Tony here, and this week I have a great program lined up for you. Another interview and artist feature centered on Nick Magnus. Nick is, of course, probably best known as keyboardist and bandmate of Steve Hackett for more than 10 years, from roughly 1978 to 1989. But he has been involved in other bands and projects over the years and has recorded six solo albums, including his latest and perhaps greatest called Catharsis. Today, Nick and I will be taking us through a lot of his illustrious career. Before I begin, thanks again to all my supporters on Patreon, who helped me continue to produce this program. I've got a lot of interview and music scheduled for this week, so I'll get things rolling. Before we hear from Nick about his early history, let's do a tune. This song comes from his Inhaling Green album, and it's called The Devil and the Deep Blue Sea. Once again, that was The Devil and the Deep Blue Sea by Nick Magnus. It comes from his 1999 release, Inhaling Green. Now let's hear some of my chat with Nick. First, it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the program, Nick.
4: Oh, well, thank you very much for having me.
3: So uh, I always like to ask artists, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your early history? You know, how did you first get into music and did you study? Did you have a musical family, all that kind of stuff?
4: Oh, it goes back a long way. How long have you (laughs) gone?
3: hey uh, you know what i i have no time constraints here i'll i'll edit it you know and i'll use selected parts in in the program obviously but uh you know so
4: yeah. um well my family wasn't musical not not particularly my, my mother um used to play the piano a bit by ear um she'd she would come into my, come into my room instead of the piano and sort of bash out recognizable versions of things, not very accurate, but completely recognizable. Um, and uh, my, my father claimed that he played the trumpet once, but um, I never saw any evidence of it. And, hmm. and to the day he died, I never heard him hum or whistle or sing or show <laughs> any kind of <laughs> musical interest at all, which is quite hmm. strange. Um, but I was always fascinated with it, I, I mean, from the age of six, when I went to, went to nursery school and found a piano and started bashing away on that. I was, I was always interested in, um, in the keyboard side of things, I think. Um, I don't know if you remember a band from the early 60s called The Tornadoes. Yes. They? Yes, they had their famous hit, Telstar.
3: Telstar, I played it on the show a few months back, so yeah.
4: Yeah, great. <laughs> well, I I always wondered what the instrument was that played the tune on it um, and found out many years later that it was, it was a silma clavioline, but um, that kind of information was, you know, you just couldn't come by it at the time. So I was left left wondering, but, but it kind of triggered off my interest in um, keyboard sounds, which kind of grew in the 60s when, you know, when the synthesizers started appearing and... Um, I bought all sorts of synthesizer based records. And then um Wendy Carlos's switched on Bark came mm-hmm. and that just that 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 sealed the deal basically. I thought that's what I want to do.
3: <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I have that record. tip. <clears throat> yeah,
4: that, and and the well tempered clavier as well, which is um was the the one that followed it. Mm-hmm. Um, just unbelievably wonderful records, those. And um my first school, well, my first band was at school in 1972, um, where we, uh, all the other, all the other school bands were all playing cover versions of, you know, standard, you know, rock and roll classics and stuff, but we were playing stuff like. Um, uh, um, Yes, and King Crimson. We actually were doing versions of yours is no disgrace, and in the court of the Crimson King.
3: Awesome, awesome.
4: <laughs> so, <laughs> badly, really, really badly. <laughs> but but you know, but the uh, you know the, the intent was there. We just uh, we just thought, no, we want to. We, we were completely into into prod, right from the word go. So, um, my first professional engagement um, was in 1976 when I joined the Enid.
3: Right, I was going to ask you about that, and if you could talk a little bit about uh, working with uh, Robert John Godfrey. Um, an interesting experience. <laughs> I, I imagine I've heard rumors.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was an interesting experience. Um, um, I'm not sure what kind of stories I can actually <laughs> tell, tell here <laughs> and, and get away with it, but uh, um, I just leave a lot to the imagination. But um, I wasn't in the in the band for that long. I was. I think I joined in May of 76 and left in November. Um, uh, in that time, I learned an incredible amount. And if, if there's anything I have to thank Robert for, it's teaching me about composition. And he was a superb teacher. Um, he used to sit at the piano and he would like give me tune, he'd play a tune and say, harmonize that, but don't harmonize it you know, in the obvious way, and, and it really made me think about things and um, in terms of composition you know, doing, you know, how to make the best use of the, the ideas that you have, because of course, before I joined the band, or the kind of music I was writing, it was what I'd call, you know, A to Z music, you know, you just get all the ideas that you have that happen to be in a similar key and just string them together and call it a piece, um, and, you know, he taught me how to take just two or three of those ideas and develop them. And um, it took a while, you know, it took a while for it all to sink in. But in, you know, later, later years, um, it finally did sink in. <laughs> and um, so, I, you know, I, I I have to thank him for that, for that wonderful thing, which, you know, I, I couldn't have got it any other way. I never went to a music college or anything like that. So uh, it was a bit like a kind of um, uh, uh, compressed musical education in the space of six months. So uh, that was very, very, uh, yeah, very good, very, very useful information for the future. Um, right, after, yeah. yeah, after the Enid, I was in a band called Autumn
3: for a couple of yeah, years. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that next. And uh, yeah, I, I, I have that record, uh, and I consider it something of a lost gem, and i've I've seen on forums that uh, other people really think it's something else and i I listened to it again last night, so yeah, tell us about that i I'm going to definitely play a track from it on the program when I put the program together Oh
4: good yeah, do that yeah. <laughs> um, well we well we wrote all our own material it was very um i suppose a lot of the influences from the Enid came out in it um and we never, well, we, played, you know, we played local gigs around. We didn't travel far and wide, we did some local gigs. Um, but we never imagined that we'd ever put an album out. We, we always wanted to put an album out. Um, but Ocean World came together um, by happenstance, really. Um, there was a local music shop that we, we all patronized, and um, they built an eight track studio um, upstairs. And Mark, the guitarist, used to work in the shop. And uh, Mike, who uh, owned the shop, said, um, said to him, Can you think of any other ba- any, you know, any bands that would like to come and road test the studio for us? Because we don't know whether it works or not. <laughs> and immediately said, No, Mark said, We'll do it. You know, Autumn will do it. So we did. We went in and we recorded Ocean World, maybe, or what became Ocean World, um, on a little Brennel 8 track recorder um pretty much all in one go i mean we only did a handful of overdubs um um really as you know as few as you could get away with but it's what you hear there is by and large live it's you know and we, 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 we're on the you know playing on the seat of our pants really as we did it
3: makes <laughs> it all the more impressive i think
4: yeah yeah and um and it kind of went into the archives and we had um, we had a reel to, we had the master of it on a, on a quarter inch reel to reel and it stayed in a box for well
3: 20 yeah, years right
4: 20 years yeah it stayed yeah. in a box stayed in a box for 20 years and um, of course in those 20 years technology grew improved and everything and in 1999 um, mark found a black bin bag in a cupboard with some tapes in it. He said, "I wonder what this tape is." And uh, of course, it was it was the Ocean World Master. So I happened to have a Revox record tape recorder at the time, and he gave it to me and said, um, "Can you transfer this to that? Because some, um, you know, to DAT, uh, which was the you know the digital format of the digital, DAT. yeah, yeah. And um, maybe we should think about putting in putting it out as an album. So um, I transferred it." Onto that, and did a little bit of um, little bit of tweaking, and um, yeah, what little tweaking I could do in those days to to improve it. And we, that's when we stuck it out on the CD. And uh, you know, twenty what was it? Twenty two years after we recorded it. And we last year we released re-released it um, again on vinyl,
5: <laughs> mm.
4: uh, which was something that we'd always wanted. It was, we felt it, it deserved it because. If it had come out at the, at the original time when we recorded it, that's exactly how it would have been Right. on vinyl with a gatefold sleeve. So that's what we did. Uh, and I took the opportunity to um, do a bit more remastering on it with, you know, with, um, with all the uh, posh tools that I've got now to, to do that with. Um, that's how it came about.
3: So let's check out a tune from that early band and album which Nick was talking about in the interview segment. Again, the band was called Autumn, and they recorded one album called Ocean World back in the 70s, but it took roughly 20 years to eventually be released. Anyway, from that album, this is Some Like It Crunchy. Once again, that was Some Like It Crunchy from the band Autumn, which featured a very young Nick Magnus, the name of the album Ocean World. After the break, Nick and I will chat a bit about his time working with Steve Hackett, and we'll hear more great music from his career. Stay tuned.
0: We better get back, because it'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night. mostly. is necessary.
3: Continuing on with my artist interview and feature program on Nick Magnus, I'm going to play something from his 2004 solo album called Hexameron. This is Seven Hands of Time, which features Steve Hackett on guitar. Seven hands of time from Nick Magnus's third solo album Hexameron. Now let's hear more of my chat with Nick himself. So that would bring us to uh, what I will term the Hackett years. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you worked with both Steve and his brother John uh, for quite a while. You were in Steve's. Uh, you were a big part of Steve's band, right? Yeah. Yeah, from
4: 1978 up until 1989. So eleven years we
3: we were working together, yeah so uh, do you have any favorite recollections from this time? Any favorite tracks that you really you know think uh showed your collaboration with Steve? you know
4: Well, I think really, you have to say spectral mornings because um I mean that was the first commercial release that I was ever on, um it was obviously it predated ocean world by twenty years yeah <laughs> um. And uh, that whole experience of recording that was just, it was just a magical time. Um, we had a fantastic studio we went to in Holland, uh, which is Polygram's studio in, in Vissalord. And it was in the midst of winter, it was January 1979 when we recorded it, because we'd already toured it in 78, or some of it anyway, what was, what, what was written. Um, plus obviously material from Please Don't touch and Borgia the acolyte mm-hmm. um, and the rest of the album was kind of you know came together in the, in the studio, um, but it was in the mid depths of winter and it was heavy snow and ice and everything and um, we basically slept in the slept in the day and worked at night <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, and it was i mean the staff in the studio were really lovely the, they were they were it actually had, a, um, what was it, three three studios all in a row in a corridor. And in the studio next door to us was Kayak. You know Kayak? I do, yeah. Yes. And they were recording Phantom of the Night at the time. And um, I I was a, I was a huge Kayak fan at the time. I got all their albums up to that point. Mm-hmm. And when I found out they were in the studio next door, I, I, was, I was kind of like, right, I'm going <laughs> I yeah. want to say hello. So I knocked on the door and went in. And they were absolutely charming and delightful. And um, so I watched them record a bit of that and sort of made good friends of, um, of uh, Tom and Edward and Tom's brother Peter. Um, uh, so that was a nice memory. Um, a lot of the album was, I shouldn't say that, I know it's been said before, Steve said it himself in a, in a video thing we spent most, most of the time under, under the influence of alcohol. <laughs> Because <laughs> the, the janitor gave us the dr- the key to his drinks cupboard and just said, "Help yourself, boys." Wow! So, so, well, it's, rock, it's rock and roll, <laughs> what right? You, what else do you do when you're given the key to the drinks cupboard? So we did, right? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was just a crackingly good time. Um, you know, we we were all given everybody in the band was given free reign. To contribute as much as they possibly could to it so we really felt it was like a kind of um you know like a, a, a collaboration you know a proper collaboration it wasn't what you know there's one guy sitting there saying you know you play this you play that it was like you know what what can we bring what can we all bring to the table and um so we did it was it was great and um and defector similarly that was that was a that was a really fun time as well that was that was done in england um there were lots of happy memories associated with that as well. um yeah i, I enjoyed it all I, I every album that we did there was always there was something really great for me, but I think that the favorite has to be spectral mornings because it's such a special one for me personally.
3: your first time in the big time studio and everything yeah, yeah, learning the uh the rock and roll ways <laughs> 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 so um can you tell us why you and Steve eventually parted ways? I mean you know if you don't want to, I'll cut it out you know
4: <clears throat> no 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 um it was it was my decision um basically in the end it was my decision um we i think the last proper tour that we did was in nineteen eighty four we did the um the till we have faces tour, and then after that um Steve didn't get much record company support basically um, it, the, uh, uh, the later albums were done on a, um, a label called Lamborghini um, but it was a small label and there was no, at the time it was, you know, I think prog rock generally was going through a tough time mm-hmm. um, whereas in the charisma years of course, you know, they, they were you know, chucking money at it so we could you know, do all these wonderfully big tours and you know around Europe and the States and here and everything but that support wasn't there, so after the Faces tour, we we didn't tour anymore. But we carried on um, recording, um, um, on and off various things. Um, and I think the last the last stuff, or well, the last full album that we did was, which was done really done in bits and pieces, was what became Feedback '86. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, we did um, tracks which were they were preparatory. Even say it preparatory tracks for what eventually came Guitar Noir. Um, although I wasn't actually part of the you know the proper recording of Guitar Noir, but some of the things that I did the prep tracks ended up on on that album. But um, still, in all that time, there'd been no touring, and so I was doing busy doing sessions, more, pretty much all through the all through the 80s, I was doing lots and lots of recording sessions for all sorts of different people. And um, that, you know, one thing led to another. And um, myself and uh, a friend of mine in 1989 um, were invited um, to um, buy a, a label called um, Telstar, funny enough, Telstar again. <laughs> hmm. uh, Telstar, which was basically, it was basically a, a Telstar was an, a, a label that, that did, that did, Largely released cover version albums, um, of things that, you know, would ultimately end up in, in, you know, the record, you know, the, the racks in gas stations and things, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, they, they asked if we'd be interested in recording an album of, um, there was, did I, did I say the name of my friend, Chris Cousins? Um, uh, he, the two of us were invited to, um, basically do an album of synthesizer cover versions of, you know, well-known tunes, either, you know, hit tunes or film themes or whatever. And so we we did a demo tape for it. They liked it and they said, go ahead and do a whole album. And that became um, a thing called, unsurprisingly, the synthesizer album. Okay. Um, went under the name of Project D. And it was a huge hit, unsurprisingly. Uh, un- un- no not unsurprisingly it was surprisingly very surprisingly <laughs> to us I mean we couldn't believe it um, and uh, it became because it it suddenly came at a time when recording in your own home studio was suddenly you know it was possible to do the technology was there we had you know we had sequences and that machines and stuff so you could actually record something that was quite you know quite commercially possible in the terms of you know Quality and everything. Mm-hmm. So, so we did. We did. A, well, we did a few of those after that. Um, the, the, the subsequent ones were never quite as, as successful because I think that moment had passed. Um, but it became clear to me that uh, following a, 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 a um, following a, a sort of production career was was probably going to be the thing to do. So. Um, so I embarked on a series of those for um, Telstar and other people. And um, it, it was in 1990, beginning in 1990, where Steve called me up and said, We're going to go on the road again. You know, I want to go on the road again. Um, are you up for it? And I thought long and hard about it. And a lot had changed in terms of technology between when we last toured and 1990. Um, because when we last toured, my keyboard rig was. Um, it was it was a big rig. It was eleven keyboards. I had <laughs>
5: mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> overkill, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they, they they were they all had a function. They all they were, they were all necessary. Um, but they were all you know, analog synthesizers, electromechanical keyboards. There was no MIDI involved. There was nothing. Mm-hmm. There was there was no interconnectivity, basically. So, and everything was programmed so that if one keyboard happened to go down, I could fill in instantly on another one. I had a you know, a kind of close sound that would that would fit the missing thing, um, and as as and usually the thing that always went down was the mellotron. <laughs> yeah, I've heard <laughs> so that. I
3: could,
4: uh, so I could fill it. I could fill in for the mellotron on the on the Roland VP 330. You know, the vocoder. So I could, So there's always a fill in that you could you could do, um, but suddenly I was looking at a uh, a MIDI um, setup. And I was really fearful that if one thing in the setup went down, the whole setup, the whole rig would go, Um, you know, and (laughs) the one thing I I just couldn't, uh, I just couldn't stand the idea of being the, the, you know, the one aspect that that ruined the gig, basically. Mm And um, so, so I just said to Steve, well, you know, I explained it all to him and I just said, I don't think I can handle it technically I, I, I don't think I don't think I'm up to it um, regretfully I'd like to pass besides which I, you know I started on this other kind of this road and which I'd like to follow so uh, and he understood you know it was he was perfectly fine with it um, and um, that, was, that was really why we parted company it was, it was me wussing out basically yeah. I couldn't I, I just couldn't. Um, I couldn't see. I couldn't see a way that the, the technology wouldn't let me down. So um, I didn't want to let him down or anybody else. So uh, I thought the safest thing
3: to do would be to pass. <laughs> so you guys have remained friends. I, I know he's been on your 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 latter albums.
4: Oh yes, yes, from all, on everyone from Hexhammer and onwards. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yes, we 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 remain extremely good friends ever since. And in fact, you know. Um, um um uh, Steve and Joe get together with with me and Dick on a regular basis. We go out for frequent meals and, <laughs> and That's just great. Put, the world, put the world to rights and um, and uh, yeah, and in fact it was nice to be able to, to make an appearance on the um Genesis Revisited Two album as well. You know, we re-recorded Camino Real.
3: Now let's check out that song that Nick performed with Steve Hackett for Steve's Genesis Revisited Two album in two thousand twelve. The new version of Camino Royale. Once again, that was a new version of Camino Royale, which originally appeared on Steve Hackett's Highly Strung album in 1983, and of course featured Nick Magnus on keyboards. Steve recorded this new version for his Genesis Revisited 2 album and had Nick on the keys once more. After this short break, a bit more of my chat with Nick Magnus and a lot more great music from his most recent solo albums, including his latest, Catharsis. Stay with me.
4: Hi, this is Mick Box of Heap, and you're listening to Prog Watch, the best, fine, test. Keep on rocking. Happy days.
3: Before we finish up with the interview, I'm going to spin a couple of great tracks from Nick's two previous albums, Children of Another God and Mnemonics. From the former, I'm playing the title track. From the latter, a song called Eminent Victorians, which also happens to feature the talents of Mr. Steve Hackett.
7: Genetic checks Custom built to military specs Fit for purpose, judged to be best Oh
1: questions our view of mankind in monkey So it can't be a crime Devouring our children Just like old father father time
3: Once again, that was Children of Another God, title track from Nick Magnus's 2010 solo album, and Eminent Victorians from his 2014 release, Mnemonics, and that's spelled N-apostrophe-M-O-N-I-X. Now here's the rest of my chat with Nick. So, uh, yeah, you have recorded six solo albums of your own, and you've had many notable guests such as the Hackett Brothers, Pete Hicks, Tony Patterson, Tim Bonus, and Steve Unruh, so, uh... Let's talk a little about your solo albums. Do you have any favorite recollections or favorite tracks from uh, from those various albums? Um.
4: Yeah, well, <laughs> I suppose I like them it like, all.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's like trying to pick your favorite kid, you know? You, it, you, yes, it is. Yeah, it's you can't exact, do it. It's, you know?
4: it's exactly like that. You, you, you can't really do it. I think probably uh, most people would feel the same way that it's the most recent thing that you've done is is always your current favorite right Um, and I'm I mean I'm particularly um, fond of Catharsis because as it's the most recent um, because of all of them in terms of the concept of the album um, it's the most personal because you know it's it's based on personal experience rather than um, rather than anything else Basically, so you know, so you put more, more of more of your own emotions and feelings come out of it. Um, so I couldn't, but I couldn't, I couldn't pick a favorite track really. You know, if I pick one, I would go, oh no, 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 but I like that one as well. No, uh, no, right. I like. That one as well. you know, like
3: <laughs> so I, I guess there is special meaning in the title.
4: Uh, yes. Um, I don't know how much you know about the background of it um, not,
3: not a whole lot no I just know I, I like it and I think it is probably one of your best works personally I think you've shown a progression over the years
4: oh well, thank you very much thank
3: you. yeah
4: <laughs> it's <laughs> nice to know its nice to know you're getting better <laughs> you always you always really hope that you are getting better yeah um, yes catharsis it's a it's a double meaning it's it's, it's a bit of a pun the title um, catharsis as in a big you know a big sort of um in a kind of um, um, revelation, new revelation, new yeah. revelation moment. Um, uh, but the uh, the actual track album was inspired by a place where um, Dick and I go on holiday. Um, well, we have done for the last twelve years. Um, uh, in the Pyrenees, in in the you know in the southwest France, um, which um, is an absolutely fantastic beautiful area. It's, it's brimming with history and um, beautiful places. And it's one of the th- historical things it's most well known for is that it was where the Cathars used to um, hang out, basically, who, in the, you know, back in the 13th century, 12th, 13th century, um, the Cathars were a, a you know, religious group that um, basically kept to themselves. Um but were persecuted by the by the Roman Catholics for the the inquisition um, and uh, so hence the pun cathars yeah cathar is
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay I get it
4: and the it's the opening track um red blood and white stone which is with, it's the that tells their story basically that tells the story of the siege in twelve thirty four they were holed up in a in a fort um built on the very top of this very precipitous rock called Monsegur. and they were holed up there for a year and a half until the uh, the, the, the Inquisition starved them out, and um, and um, to over two hundred of them burnt them refused to um, um, recant their faith and were burnt at the stake as heretics. And so it's a pretty gruesome story, mm-hmm. and um, and the rest of it, it is just inspired by there is places uh, in the region that, that that just sort of really you know rang a bell um, either from the history or just the you know the sheer sort of magic of the, of the place so that that's that's the essence of the uh, the uh, the concept
3: okay so uh, i understand now that you were a little uh, technophobic in the uh 90s we'll say uh, have you have you embraced midi now or, or are you still uh an analog guy
4: i'm not in the least bit technophobic anymore
3: <laughs> okay
4: i love technology um and uh no i'm not an old analog guy um i i fully embraced the whole digital you know and virtual world in virtual fact,
3: instruments I, yeah
4: yeah i mean most most pretty much all my all um, my rig now is, is virtual instruments. I do have some hardware left um, which i don't I tend to use it, don't, don't tend to use it very much now because i 've got some um, exactly the same instruments recreated um, virtually and the advantage being is, is that um, they 're fully MIDI controllable whenever you reload a in a project everything comes back exactly as you left it um, and uh, the hardware doesn 't do that <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and as far as I'm concerned, it sounds exactly the same. Um, I can't, I, I just can't buy into this, um, oh, you know, oh, analogue sounds better, um, you know, you can tell. Um, I, I, I sincerely doubt that most people given an A-B-blind test would really be able to tell whether something was analogue or not. Um, I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of nonsense talked about all of that. So, so yes, I like the technology. Absolutely, totally into it.
3: (laughs) So I hope you enjoyed listening in on my conversation with Nick Magnus. Stay with me, though, as I have time for a great track from his latest album. In fact, the track he was talking about that deals with the story of the Cathars. But first, special thanks to Nick for speaking with me, and I wish him all the best with his new album and all of his endeavors. So here's Red Blood on White Stone from Nick's latest release, Catharsis.
7: The ending for descending, maintaining for conflict, an army of ten thousand.
3: Once again, that was Red Blood on White Stone from the great new album by Nick Magnus, which again is called Catharsis. If you are interested, I will have links you can follow to find more about that album and Nick's other works when I post this show to my website, progwatch.com. That's P-R-O-G-W-A-T-C-H, all one wordcom At progwatch.com, you will also find my email and social media links, a link to my Patreon page if you would like to possibly support the show, And of course, every episode I have ever done with artist links to accompany all of those 300 plus episodes. And remember, if looking through 300 plus episodes seems a little daunting, you can easily search the website from the top of the homepage. Just look for the little magnifying glass. So thanks for coming along for the ride. Until next time, be well and prog on, my brothers and sisters.
6: is quite absurd and death's the final word you must always face the curtain with a bow forget about your scene give the audience a grin enjoy it it's your last chance and it so always look on the bright side of Nothing. What are you lost? Nothing. The right side of life. Nothing will come from nothing. You know what I say? Always Cheer up, you old bugger. Come on, right give us a quiz. There you the are. Line. See? It's the end of the film. Incidentally, this record's available always in the foyer. Someone's right got to live as well, you line. know. All right, it's a lot. Bernie, I said, they'll never make that money oh. back.